Idiot. Now I have to make more. W what was it? It's acid, Morty. Pure LSD. I'm sorry, Rick. Ugh, whatever. There goes the next half hour of my life. DMT is a hundred thousand times crazier than that. It's like mushrooms times a million plus aliens. Now, as I was saying, uh, drugs are bad. You shouldn't do drugs. Hallucinations are completely different. They don't seem to give our creation. Public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. They don't seem to be under control. They seem to come from the outside. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. And to mimic perception. Can magic mushrooms unlock depression? It's not the mushroom that unlocks depression. It's the patient. The mushroom just shows them the key. And if your head explodes with the bones too, I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. Psychedelic, a term loaded with a lot of history, a lot of intrigue, and a lot of misconceptions. While the term psychedelic is less than 100 years old, many of the substances that we now refer to as psychedelics have been an important part of human history for thousands of years. Often a part of spiritual ceremonies or coming-of-age rituals, we have a long and torrid relationship with these mysterious compounds, many of which are found in nature, and many more that we have now synthesized. The countercultural movements of the 1960s led to a modern interest in these ancient substances, spurring a radical shift in music, art, and attitudes as people began to speak of their benefits, of the spiritual journeys, and radical shifts in thinking and in self. But along with the good comes the bad. The fear of having a nightmarish experience, the rumors of self-inflicted paranoia and mental anguish suffered by those on a bad trip. So what are we to believe? Do psychedelics have mind-altering powers that can be harnessed for good? Or do the risks outweigh the potential for enlightenment? What kind of research is being done to try and understand or even unlock their potential? This is Amber, and I will be your Cheshire Cat for this episode of Raw Talk Podcast. And I'm Sina, and I'll be your Dormouse for this episode. It's time to get curiouser and curiouser, and feed your head information about psychedelics. So turn on, tune in, and drop out with us as we attempt to chase down the white rabbit. So, full disclaimer, I'm actually very excited to be making this episode. I've been interested in psychedelics for over half my life, and I've come to have a lot of admiration and a deep respect for these substances. I'm interested in their history and how humans have used psychedelics in various ceremonial and religious contexts for millennia. But I'm also interested in how they can be used today for personal exploration. I think the science behind psychedelics, or at least what we know of it, is incredibly interesting. But I also think that the highly subjective aspect of psychedelics is important too. What people experience on these substances can help us to better understand how they work and what potential benefits they could have. We'll hear more about Amber and her experiences with psychedelics later in this episode. But first, we want to delve a little bit into the research that has been attempting to understand how these substances work and what kind of lasting effects they can have on the people who take them. Since people have reported the effects and benefits of psychedelics for so many years, researchers are interested in better characterizing these mysterious drugs and finding out how they truly work. However, before we get into the current research taking place in psychedelics, it's important to understand the past. In order to do this, I spoke with Dr. Edward Shorter. Dr. Shorter is a historian of medicine and holds the History of Medicine Chair at the Faculty of Medicine at U of T. He also holds the academic rank of Professor of Psychiatry. I asked him to discuss the different types of psychedelic drugs and their origins. Now, psychedelic is not a specific term. It covers everything from a mild buzz to seeing stars, and it's entered medicine from the culture portal not from the science portal. Uh, psychedelic is not a scientific concept. The term psychedelic was coined in 1956 by Humphrey Osmond, an English psychiatrist who worked in Saskatchewan for a significant portion of his career. The word psychedelic is derived from Greek and translates to soul manifesting. Psychedelics are grouped into three main groups. The first are the serotonergic psychedelics which activates serotonin receptors in your brain. 
Drugs in this category include LSD, psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms, DMT, and mescaline. The next category are empathogen and tactogens. These release serotonin in your brain and include drugs such as MDMA, also known as ecstasy. The last group are the dissociative psychedelics. This group includes ketamine. Now let's hear from Dr. Shorter about how some of these drugs were discovered. Well, amphetamine synthesized initially in 1887 was a very promising molecule. And it was clearly uh, sympathomimetic in addition to being highly psychoactive. And this is just too much of an opportunity for a clinical pharmacologist to resist. And Merck was a pioneering company in the area of clinical psychopharmacology. Its first director was a famous pharmacologist. Merck has always had a sterling scientific reputation. Among the bigs in the drug industry, Merck and Lilly stand out for their commitment to fast lane science. And so it's not at all a surprise that they would take this molecule, the amphetamine PEA backbone, and start substituting it. Substituting it means attaching various uh, atoms to it to see uh, what you can get out of it. So all the amphetamines that we've talked about in our conversation have been substituted amphetamines. So that's what they were doing. They were substituting it with various atoms to see uh, what worked in the clinic and, and what didn't work. This is the 1920s we're talking about before clinical trials of any kind. Also, Merck itself doesn't do trials. It gives the drug to sympathetic doctors and requests them to uh, run the trial. That's what the medical director of a pharmaceutical company does. Uh, and they had some luck in the mood area, but they didn't have a lot of luck. And in the 1920s, people weren't looking primarily at mood disorders. They were uh, interested in dementia praecox, otherwise known as schizophrenia. And the amphetamines didn't have uh, an impact at all on schizophrenia. So they really put these things on the shelf. And in the meantime, they became street drugs. The word got around that these uh, were powerful psychedelics, although that term wasn't used in the 1920s. And they started their street careers. I mean, anybody can make MMDA. It's not a complicated molecule. And uh, that's why uh, ecstasy in the 1960s became basically the club drug of choice. It was uh, easy to get hold of, powerfully hallucinogenic, and uh, it didn't cost an arm and a leg. We need to start tightening the screws a little bit in terms of getting more objective outcome measures. That was Dr. Norman Farb an associate professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, who studies mental habits and how they contribute or detract from well-being. Dr. Farb is the director for the new Psychedelic Studies Research Program at UTM. Of course, you want to start with the subjective experience, like, oh, there's a signal here. Like, people are reporting there's a benefit. They're reporting something really meaningful. They're reporting, you know, I never smoked a cigarette again. I, I uh, realize, like, my all my life priorities are wrong, and I'm going to spend more time with family. You have these kind of things that would be reminiscent. You would almost never see that um, in the natural life course for people unless they had some kind of, like, natural disaster, like a cancer diagnosis or, like, near-death experience or you know, something that really shook them up. So you see that signal there, and it's really compelling. Um, but that's not enough uh, to <laughs> trade public policy on, right? And, and on the flip side, you hear about people having bad trips and, um, and adverse events. And again, you wouldn't want to set policy based on a, a few anecdotes because you have no idea what proportion of people um, that really represents. Yeah, so that's the goal is start moving towards a bit more objective uh, clinical science and still honor that rich tradition of clinical reports, which is really what m even motivates people to think this is a good idea. It's like, oh yeah, there, I have heard lots of people have these benefits. I wish we could really prove that's a thing. I think a common conception or misconception might be that, you know, that this research is inherently going to be flaky um, because it's based on these sort of like far out man experiences. <laughs> and I think especially with microdosing when people aren't actually tripping, right? They're not, you know, breaking from reality. Even the participants don't have to get into those sort of uh, states. And, uh, you know, for our program um, at U of T, what we're really trying to do is follow these sort of emerging principles of open science. So pre-register hypotheses, make data fully anonymized and transparent so other researchers can replicate our analyses, state our hypotheses and methods ahead of time, use well-validated um, 
measures or if those measures don't exist, do the validation studies for ourselves. So I think the flakiness is a is sort of built into people's like Shaggy from Scooby Doo conception of, of psychedelics, and uh, we're trying to create a model where we can show that we can use sort of the state of the art, you know, randomized control trial methods, be really transparent, um, really a priori about what we expect to find, um, and sort of set the tone for this is there is a way to do this correctly. It's annoying doing everything correctly. Like you know, it would be much easier for someone to get you know mushrooms on, on the street or with an internet order than to get Health Canada approval or something like that. But you know, what we're trying to do is create something that has some sustainability. And I think this again is an approach that that I've applied and my colleagues have applied in studying meditation, where now there is some relatively legitimate, like high caliber scientific evidence of meditation's benefits, and there just wasn't like 25 years ago. Then it, it just comes from sort of standing up for uh, scientific principles ahead of outcomes and then being open like like the outcomes will be useful and meaningful even if they disconfirm what we expect to happen because <laughs> we'll at least believe like they're true representations of, of the mechanisms of, and effects of the drugs. So this is a perfect segue to our next guest who is beginning to use psychedelics in formal clinical trials. We spoke to Dr. Fred Barrett, an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins, about a new center called the Center for Psychedelics and Consciousness Research. A group of private donors have given $17 million to start the center, the first of its kind in the U.S. and the largest research center of its kind in the world. It's really a watershed moment in, in psychedelic science and with such a large uh, gift in support of a large program of research that we hope to undertake with psychedelic drugs. The funding will not only support faculty and staff within the center for five years, but will also give us the resources to really uh, widely extend our understanding of the types and the breadth of indications for which psychedelic drugs may be efficacious. So there will be eight clinical trials that will be conducted over the next five years within the center. We will test it in pilot and, and proof of concept studies, whether or not uh, there's any reason to think that psilocybin may be helpful in treating some of the symptoms that accompany anorexia, nervosa, PTSD, opioid use disorder, Alzheimer's disorder, and mild cognitive impairment. And, and we will also be able to look at the effects of psychedelics in, in healthy individuals in terms of how psychedelics may affect creativity, how microdosing psychedelics may affect mood and cognition. And finally, we will uh, conduct a large clinical trial uh, to determine uh, whether or not psilocybin can be helpful in treating patients who have major depressive disorder and co-occurring alcohol use disorder. This is a, an actually a highly prevalent co-occurring set of disorders. Nearly a quarter of all people with depression also have a substantial alcohol use problem. Uh, in addition to that, we will be collecting uh, just a range of blood and, and behavioral and brain-based biomarkers to determine whether uh, we could eventually figure out why some people respond to psychedelic drugs and other people don't in terms of therapeutic outcomes. And if, you know, if we're successful, it's, it's, the, it's the, uh, the pie in the sky idea. If we're successful in understanding that, then we may be able to better uh, tailor treatments to, to individuals in the future. So we have lots of goals. We have high aspirations and and this, this center funding will, will allow us to really uh, approach and begin to try to address some of these uh, broad and, and also specific questions that we have. In addition to the studies taking place at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Barrett references other studies happening across the U.S. and Europe, which aim to use psilocybin as a treatment for depression, OCD, cocaine use disorder, and complex traumas. However, Dr. Barrett does caution against the belief that psilocybin is the cure to everything. The mechanism of how psilocybin works is unknown, but Dr. Barrett shared a few theories which include disrupting the reward system that occurs with addictive substances, increasing connectivity between areas of the brain that are involved with executive function, attention, and higher cortical functions. And lastly, and most interestingly, he believes that psilocybin affects a part of the brain called the colostrum. The claustrum has long been seen as the seat of consciousness due to its numerous connections with many parts of the brain. It also has the highest expression of serotonin 2A receptors, which are targets of psilocybin. This would explain the consciousness-altering effects of psilocybin. 
He plans to study this theory by using MRI to image the brains of those under the influence of psilocybin and monitoring the activity of the colostrum. In addition to these promising trials, psychedelics are being used in many different applications also. For instance, in Vancouver, researchers are starting a phase 3 clinical trial examining MDMA as treatment for PTSD. Another study at Johns Hopkins is examining the use of psilocybin in cancer patients and have found that psilocybin substantially reduced levels of depression and anxiety in patients with life-threatening cancers. Another study from Harvard has shown that LSD can potentially be beneficial in those who suffer from cluster headaches. Now, these studies mostly focus on subjective experiences of those taking psychedelics, which is very important when studying these drugs. We'll now hear from Amber and her own experiences with psychedelics. First time was acid or LSD when I was about 18. It wasn't the best use of it, I guess. Like anything else, I didn't know what I was doing at first. So somebody kind of gave it to me and we went and saw a movie and the experience was very good. But it was a lower dose. When you look at media, there's all sorts of depictions, everything from seeing cartoon rabbits or something talking back to you. And that's not really what it's like at all. I mean, you do get what could be called visual hallucinations, but mostly it's, again, like colors, rainbow colors, um, fractal-like geometric patterns, almost something you could compare to like a lace or a doily type patterns. So those are the types of visual hallucinations. Again, it's not things that aren't there talking to you. It's more your visual systems are being overstimulated. Being able to see the framework of how your visual system integrates information and that manifests as kind of like this fractal geometric pattern that people describe. It was very overwhelming the first time I took it because again, I didn't know what to expect. It's kind of like getting hit by a freight train almost. <laughs> no matter how many times I've done it or what psychedelics I've done, when you're coming up on it, like the effects are starting to happen, you get this almost sense of impending doom almost like a nervous feeling, like your body realizes something crazy is about to happen. <laughs> yeah, then once you take it, it takes a while to kick in depending on what you take. And then the first couple hours are what they call the peak. For me personally, I have a hard time speaking to people. I think very fast and it's almost like you can think multiple thoughts at the same time. But when you try to articulate them, they just train wreck coming out of my mouth. It was overwhelming. It was very fun. It was a very positive experience. And I just felt like my mood had been in general lifted a lot after that. And it wasn't something that went away as the drug wore away. It stayed for a really long time. And what do you think made you want to try it again? I have had what people would call a bad trip. I have had ego death. And that's what usually leads to a bad trip in my experience is if you're not used to the sensation of ego death, ego death being the inability to distinguish yourself from your surroundings. So that sense of you as an autonomous individual person, it goes away if you take very high doses. Even if you're used to that feeling, it's very unnerving because it's hard to differentiate, for example, if you have something on the TV between what's going on in the TV and what's going on around you because you have lost your sense of self. There's something deeply unsettling about losing your entire sense of self. You're still having thoughts. It's very, very bizarre, but it's just you can't really distinguish yourself. And so then that leads to anxiety. But I guess, yeah. Even knowing that you can have a bad trip, for me, definitely is worth it because the net positive benefits have stuck with me and have fundamentally altered who I am and how I see the world and how I react to situations around me. That's very interesting. How do you think your perspective of psychedelic drugs changed over time? When I first tried it, it was the novelty. It was something that I'd always wanted to do and I wanted to try it. And I guess back then people weren't talking about it as much as they are now. This would have been like 10 years ago or so. So it was more of a curiosity, something that I wanted to try, so get off my bucket list, so to speak. But now I have a great deal of respect for psychedelic substances. They're not something to just mess around with at a party. They're not something to just take impulsively. I always like to say that it's called a trip because it's like taking a trip. You don't usually just take a trip, right? You plan for it. You make sure you have that day off work, the next day off work, so you don't have to stress about anything treat it like you're going on a kind of mini vacation. I hate to use the word spiritual because I feel like it's th thrown around quite a lot, but I don't really know any other way to describe it in terms of both the net positive it has and how I view it now, having gone through it myself quite a few times. There's not really any other better word I can use to describe it other than I see it as a very spiritual experience for myself, a way to kind of reconnect with everything around me, with who I am as a person, to reevaluate what I'm doing with my life and how I'm 
processing my life. So I have a lot of respect for it. I think that's what's changed is I've built a lot of respect for it. As mentioned before, subjective experiences like Amber's can be indispensable in qualitative research on psychedelics. This was definitely the case with Dr. Farb's research. Dr. Norman Farb's group at UTM wants to study microdosing in a controlled environment to better characterize the therapeutic and cognitive enhancing effects. Because there really is no recent safety data, our approach is that people will have to take the drugs in clinic and stay in clinic until the drug is mostly out of their system. So we're talking about like a pretty intensive commitment for our participants. This program really started based on doing some qualitative research uh, with online participants who were reporting different psychedelic use and we did a paper on people who started reporting that they were microdosing so taking these sub you know hallucinations sub delusion thresholds uh, of drugs but saying that it's really improved uh, their sense of well-being most microdosing happens uh, around every three days but i think asking people to give us a full day or not or even six hours or something every three days is just not going to work despite the fact that there's a lot of unsolicited people saying sign me up for your trial um that's a big commitment so i think what we're looking at now is having people come in around once a week um when they come in they are expected to be in the clinic um, at least in the first few visits for five or six hours with medical staff around just in case, even though we don't expect any complications, just in case. And during that time, you know, we can get them to both relax, but also do a whole bunch of psychological assessments. We can get our assessment done while they're stuck there anyway. <laughs> and uh, what we're trying to do actually is um, a crossover trial where um, people are in the study for about two months. They're on the drug for one of those two months and they're on placebo for the other month and have it randomized both for the clinicians on the floor and, and assessors on the floor um, and for the participants which month is which and that's I think the you know a very clean way to see within the same person do you get benefits and for the people who start are randomized to start off on the drug do the benefits persist when they are tapered into placebo or not so there's a lot of really cool things we can get um, from that sort of trial design and I'm excited about it because there's no way you can double blind meditation yeah. right like, like oh <laughs> like it's like the science of awareness you can't like fake to, to trick people into not realizing they had awareness um, so <laughs> but yeah with a little pill you can um, and then you know they go about their business for the rest of the week we do some online assessment check-ins the rest of the week and so we're just sort of touch base with people not more than touch base they come and hang out with us for the better part of a day once a week for about two months and that's the the overall trial design and you know we try to compensate people for their time but i think it's going to be a bit of a, a labor of love for mm -hmm. our participants too um one proceed of a study like this though is if we have consistent evidence that having people in there you know for six, six hours and they're passing sobriety tests and seem good to go and there's no adverse events and we can show that across you know 100 people or something um that would open up the door to i think more flexible uh, research methods down the road, but the priority at, at the very beginning, when there's literally no safety data available to the public, is uh, is to prioritize safety, minimize risk. And I'm confident that, right, I'm at least hopeful that uh, we'll find out that yeah, you can you could give someone the pill and send them on their way, and it would be fine. But let's find out. Yeah. And the flip side is, if it's like actually you're really not safe to drive in the first two hours, like let's tell those. 10 uh, 100,000 plus people <laughs> about that research so that they don't start driving you know their their pitchfork or truck or just like commuting their kids to school or something like that <laughs> while they're on these substances our mandate right now is to try to broker enough uh, of a team together that we can run a, a clinical trial on, on microdosing psychedelics which we see as probably the the thin edge of the wedge because um, microdosing I, I should say is taking um, a a small quantity of a psychedelic substance, usually a tenth of an active dose, with the idea that you will accrue benefits over time without having the impairments of you know reality distortions, delusions, hallucinations. So unlike a, an experience on you know a full dose or like a heroic dose of psychedelics, which is a technical term actually, a heroic dose like a mushroom is like seven grams or more, which is like a kind of insane dose actually. Um, you know people might experience full blown like ego dissolution when they don't have a sense of themselves anymore. The reality completely changes. With microdosing, you're not going to have perhaps the immediate acute um, distortion of reality that can produce such intense changes in meaning. But instead, people report 
kind of a, a slow burn benefit where they're talking about things like having more stable attention, uh, feeling like they're more creative, feeling like they have higher levels of self-efficacy. So there's things they've been meaning to do, but they get distracted or th- worry about something. They don't end up doing it. They feel like there's less sort of mental barriers to doing what they want to do um, and also having better mood. So I think those four categories, uh, stability of attention, self-efficacy, creativity, and mood are the modal benefits that are mentioned, the most commonly mentioned benefits. And so we are trying to develop paradigms or use existing psychological um, paradigms to assess change in all four of those domains um, to see if it's really any better than you'd get if you were on placebo, for instance. (laughs) Because, you know, my attitude is that there is a lot of potential for these drugs. Clearly, people are are getting something out of it in their own appraisal. But if you could take a multivitamin and have the same benefit, we don't have to deregulate a controlled substance. (laughs) So that sounds important. And then on the flip side, for for detriments, um, for the cost of doing these drugs, the number one thing is that people are a bit concerned that it's illegal and at any time there could be repercussions from engaging in illegal activity. That's the the dominant, the most common concern. But, you know, for some people trying a drug, hoping for mood benefits or attentional stability, you might get the opposite result. So each of these benefits has like a flip side where it doesn't work and you feel more distracted or more anxious, uh, more locked into your head. Uh, So that could happen. And the other thing I think is quite interesting that's not mentioned often as a detriment with microdosing is that people think they're totally fine to just go about their daily activities, which might include driving, operating heavy machinery, taking care of small children, you know, who knows what people are doing in all walks of life. And uh, that may very well be true, but um, I've never seen a publication looking at like microdosing on, you know, a field sobriety test, for instance. If you get pulled over and you're feeling great on your microdose, sorry, are you going to get into trouble? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and not just not just the person who's using it, but is it a public um, safety concern? So trying to establish uh, those sort of boundaries, I think, are also really important. Dr. Fred Barrett from Johns Hopkins also believes that additional research is required on microdosing. There are some anecdotal uh, pieces of evidence out there that psychedelic drugs, uh, for instance, taken in microdoses, do lead to increases in, in, in attention and mood and, and cognitive function. And um, really, there's been very, very little empirical data to investigate this question at all. There are a handful of papers, uh, one or two that have recently been published, that show that very, very small subacute or subthreshold doses of psychedelic drugs um, actually lead it to essentially no change that's detectable with the tools that we have. Maybe the only change that's been uh, noticed is a, is a change by a paper that came out of University of Chicago very recently showing that you know very small doses of, uh, I believe, LSD, if anything, just led to a slight impairment in detecting or responding to a certain type of facial emotional stimulus. The, the really interesting thing about the entire microdosing movement is that, you know, most of the noise being made about microdosing is, is being based on, on self-report anecdotal evidence. And while anecdotal evidence could be very valuable in guiding empirical science, the plural of anecdote is not data. And all of all of the uh, you know really substantial biases that come in doing that type of research, survey research simply based on anecdote, are, are substantial. So you know you're very likely to not be attracting. You know if you're conducting a study, you have to be really careful. If you're conducting a survey study, you have to be really careful to try to attract people from all different opinion types to to respond to your survey. Otherwise, there's going to be bias in reporting and, and uh, subject selection. For, for the types of surveys that have completed, been completed with microdosing so far, many of them suffer from a pretty inherent bias in the way they're worded. Um, people who haven't had a good experience with microdosing, either a null experience or maybe even a negative experience, probably aren't motivated to fill these questionnaires out or report their experiences or, or complete these surveys. And there's an investigator out in California, uh, or an individual rather, who, who has c- collected a, you know, a huge database of testimonials regarding microdosing, but we have no idea what bile drawer effect is there and how, how many null report, reports are, are being you know, not reported. And at the end of the day, uh, this entire exercise of microdosing has all of the hallmarks of a really beautiful and a really powerful placebo effect. I take this drug that I can't detect in my body, but once I take it, I kind of feel better. And everybody else says, you feel better when you do it. And, you know, 
sun's a little brighter and it's you know this is a safe drug people say it's a safe drug i'm not saying it's a safe drug i'm just saying people say you know this is part of the story around microdosing and hey let me tell you i am completely willing to be proven wrong here i would love to be proven wrong here because what that means is if microdosing is real and if microdosing actually does work that's an incredible therapeutic that, that could be available to a ton of people and it could help a lot of people i'm simply being very skeptical because really meager evidence that does exist from empirical controlled studies uh, suggest that there's no effect or maybe even a slight negative effect of these things. And and the entire exercise does really reek of placebo effects. So what I'm waiting for is the definitive well-controlled study to either give this some wheels or put it to rest. While everyone we spoke to were interested in understanding more about the benefits of psychedelics, they all warned of the inherent dangers when dealing with these types of substances as well. It can be the Wild West. I don't, I don't think that anybody is going to, uh, any, anybody who, who has experience and knowledge of these drugs is going to say that they're not powerful drugs. They're very powerful drugs. And, and, and taken without the right type of support and without the right type of preparation, people can really get into trouble and cause themselves harm, either psychological harm or physical harm. And it's it's not typically that the drugs have a physiological toxicity in healthy individuals, but they do have you know modest but reliable cardiac effects. There's reason to believe that they may not be safe for individuals who have a personal or family history with psychosis, or you know it's it's unclear whether individuals who have suffered trauma would really have a safe experience uh, without the care and counseling of a clinician during these acute effects. And, and the same goes for patients with depression, patients, patients with substance use disorders. So, so clinical populations uh, really benefit, seem to benefit, at least anecdotally, from the involvement of a clinician or someone who's clinically trained during the acute drug effects. We published a, a study in in 2016, that was that was the product of a, a large internet survey. And of course, you know, a couple minutes ago, I was poo-pooing surveys. And they do have their value and they do have their use. And, and in this particular survey, uh, we asked the people who had had a challenging experience or a bad trip with psilocybin mushrooms to come to our survey and tell us all about it, essentially. And for individuals who completed the survey, they sat down for at least a good half an hour to 45 minutes of answering questions and checking boxes and typing in responses. And, and there, there were thousands upon thousands of people who started the survey. Uh, there weren't quite that many who completed the survey, but yeah, there were, there were almost 2,000 individuals who completed the survey. And we went through each and every single survey response to try to identify people who were obviously goofing off or not not giving consistent responses. And out of those, we, we found nearly 2,000 individuals from around the world who, who completed this survey as best as we could tell, completed it earnestly. And, and uh, we asked within this survey quite a few questions to try to get a handle on various aspects of the bad trips that people had experienced, including who was there with you? And uh, were they sober or were they not sober? Did they have any training or experience with psychedelics before this? Was it a large group setting? Was it you in your basement? Were you at a, uh, a musical festival? Were you out in the woods? Were you, you know, what, what, what are all the details? And, and it, including, you know, did you cause yourself or others harm? Did you seek medical treatment for this? Did you seek psychiatric treatment for this? And would you repeat the experience? Uh, and and volunteers, by and large, indicated very challenging experiences. Some individuals indicated experiences that were very intense but very brief. Others in, uh, indicated that they had experiences that were moderate to severe intensity but very long in duration. I think I think roughly 10% of individuals who completed the study indicated that they uh, had exposed themselves or others to harm. Uh, a smaller percentage of individuals did seek medical attention for uh, experiences during their bad trip. A number of people also did seek psychological psychiatric treatment after the experience for negative affect or anxiety or depression or, or panic or, or other types of uh, you know, negative experiences that persisted beyond the effects of the drug, but that they attributed to the drug. And um, the curious aspect of this is that many people also indicated that they would repeat the experience with all of the aspects of the bad trip involved because there were a number of people who did feel that they learned from the experience, but some of that could be, hey, if I could survive that, I could survive anything, right? <laughs> like almost like a crucible. And, and, and the question then becomes, well, is it necessary? Is it really necessary to have that, that crucible experience 
uh, in order to grow. You know, maybe, maybe not. But but what was clear from the survey is that there are really quite a myriad of, of challenges and risks for self-administering these drugs outside of a controlled setting. Now that we've heard both sides, where do we go from here? We asked all of our guests the same question. The question of accessibility has to be preempted by the by a discussion of uh, therapeutic misconception. So to talk about the accessibility of these therapies, we have to acknowledge that they're not approved therapies yet. We have to acknowledge that while there's some really exciting preliminary studies and a ton of press built up around this, while, while everybody is you know, promising that these drugs are going to fundamentally change psychiatry, that might be true, but it hasn't happened yet. And, and we haven't had large controlled trials to determine the, the real gold standard of efficacy in any disorder whatsoever. Um, and, we, and we haven't really mapped out in fine detail the limits of the efficacy and the limits of the safety of these drugs. We have some preliminary ideas, but there's a lot we don't know. And, and frankly, you know, I, I like to say that if you give the wrong person at the wrong time a large dose of penicillin or amoxicillin, you'll kill them, right? There's some people who are allergic to this. But if you give the right person the right dose of penicillin under the right context, you may save their life. Um, I don't think that we need to make such a drastic statement about psychedelics, but but the same principle holds. This is going to work for some people, and it's simply not going to work for other people. We shouldn't expect that psychedelic drugs will be appropriate for everyone. Um, and one of the things we need to understand better before this gets rolled out as a, an approved therapeutic is, well, what are the boundaries of that? Can we get any sense of uh, of who this drug should not be given to and and, and possibly why? So uh, when, you're, when, when a person signs up for a research study with a psychedelic drug, uh, they have to understand that this is still research. And it's still research because we're still trying to really become definitive in whether we think uh, psychedelics will work for one thing or another. So that one of the reasons that we're running so many proof of concept or initial pilot studies in the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research here at Hopkins is because we want to start to begin to kind of map the boundaries of this space. Like what, what works and what doesn't. So within that context, and with the clear understanding that these drugs are still in preliminary stages of research, accessibility to research studies is really the, the limit to accessibility to the substances. And so uh, as, as, I, as I kind of mentioned and someone alluded to, there are a number of studies popping up around the world, really, that will be a potential uh, possibility for people to inquire about and, and screen and, and try to enroll it to, into. Um, but really, the research context is the only approved legal way to, to access these, uh, these drugs in a therapeutic context at the moment. Um, one of the best ways to figure out where and what and how and when in terms of accessibility is to go to a, a website called clinicaltrials.gov. This is a website that um, all federally funded research in the United States needs to, to register at. It's become the gold standard for pre-registration of a, a research study. So that means that when a, when a person is going to, uh, when an investigator at an institution is, is going to plan and, and initialize a study, they put the study, they put the whole plan up on clinical trials so they can say in a public forum, here, here's what we're going to try to do. Here's what we think we're going to find so that when the study's over, people can look back at that record and then they can compare it to what was found and they can and they can determine whether people uh, were essentially doing what they said and, and, and really sticking to their original plan. But it also becomes a recruitment tool. So you can go on there and you can search for psilocybin or you can search for LSD or you can search for depression or you can search for alcohol use disorder or PTSD, whatever. And you can find all of the active and recruiting studies in the world uh, since many, many Research institutions around the world have adopted this as also a gold standard for reporting um, what they plan to do in, in studies. So the best answer for accessibility is check out clinicaltrials.gov and see if there's anything near you or accessible to you. But, but it's really limited to research studies at this moment for the reason that we're still in the, in the nascent stages of, of understanding how and when and why and where these drugs may work. The exciting part and the, and the promising part is that there are now two separate organizations who are working with both the FDA and the EMA to design and to conduct phase three uh, registration trials, which are you know trials with the express purpose of coming into to a determination of whether or not there's sufficient efficacy or uh, evidence of efficacy of a drug to treat an indication 
that they can be approved for medical use. And these trials will take a number of years to complete. Once they're complete, they will likely take a number of years to pour over, to have analyzed, to get to discussions with the FDA and the EMA. And if these trials, if either of these trials is successful, that may lead to the approval of psilocybin for the treatment of some form of depression. Once that happens, there are a number of other players in the field who, who are thinking now about how to come up with the infrastructure to roll these medicines out. And that may happen within the context of specific psilocybin therapy clinics. That may happen in, in some other context. But um, I'd say that a reasonable guess at, at what the timeline might be, you know, within 10 years, we may see the approval of psilocybin uh, for some the treatment of some form of depression. And some people think that that's a really conservative estimate. Some people think that's a really liberal estimate. And so who knows? So one of the final questions that I have for you is what do you think the future of psychedelic drugs is in medicine? Where do you think we're going with it? Do you think that this fear that governments hold over psychedelic drugs can be overcome? Or do you think that it's continuously going to stay an illegal drug with mysterious potential in medicine? I think think the future of psychedelic drugs in in medicine is uh, in the mood area. These drugs are all capable of modifying mood. And if you take these molecules and start playing with them and coming up with congeners, then I find it quite conceivable that effective new antidepressants might come out of this. We've had no uh, effective new antidepressants. In the last 30 years, the field has ossified, and the SSRIs, Prozac, and its cousins have not been a therapeutic advance at all. However, there are barriers to conducting further research on psychedelics. The program's emerged really over the past year and moving up through different levels of bureaucracy. And a couple months ago, we finally got um, approval at the provost level, both to accept the uh, existing donation and also to do further fundraising, uh, which is then still contingent upon us getting the right ethics approvals and finding good clinical sites to run the trials on and so on and so forth. So there's just been a lot of team like network building over the past year. Now it looks like we've got some good partners at CAMH, like the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, where they're familiar with running drug trials on somewhat experimental drugs. Um, We have some money in place. Uh, We're applying for more grants. Um, And the biggest um, sort of hurdle or challenge we're working on now is getting the full Health Canada approval to work with a controlled substance, because although many people are an escalating number of people are self-administering psychedelics, you know, it's still a controlled substance and illegal to use without special permission. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's where we are now. We're just at the point of submitting the health can application now. There's another, there's a lot of other paperwork that's already underway. Then we have our sort of trial design all set up. And hopefully within the next two to six months, uh, we'll, we'll have the green light to start recruiting participants. The broader implications of what it's like to have people walking around a little bit high all the time (laughs) is interesting and you know culturally we understand how that works with alcohol we're starting to see how that plays out with marijuana you can look at addiction to cell phones on the roads is another thing we're trying to culturally understand and yeah i think psychedelics is the next sort of um, wave of self-administered psychotropics where people are trying to change their own minds from the bottom up like in a chemical way and we'll I think a university, like a publicly funded university, like the University of Toronto, is one of the best places to try to have an unbiased view of the benefits and detriments, right? And even if, regardless of whether you're pro-drug or anti-drug, you would want to know what the drugs do. And I would trust a research center that doesn't have a commercial interest more than I would trust a company whose livelihood is dependent upon you buying that drug, which is a common complaint, I guess, around the way pharmaceutical research runs today. I asked Dr. Ed Shorter from the History of Medicine program a similar question. What are the barriers towards moving these, aside from there's the legal barrier where all these things are classified as class one, class two, um, and enforced by the law and that you can't really use them and there's restrictions. Are there other barriers that are preventing people from using these in clinical trials? There are legal barriers in that some of these drugs, like ecstasy, are uh, so-called class one drugs, and they have no medical uses at all, and you aren't allowed to prescribe them. The other classes, classes two to four, are said to have some medical uses, for sure, but the psychedelic agents, by and large, don't. Now, that's not true of benzedrine and dexedrine. They are indicated for 
ADHD, but that's about the extent of it. So that's one barrier. The other barrier is uh, that a properly organized clinical trial today for an agent that has to be worked up from scratch costs hundreds of millions of dollars. The financial stakes here are enormous. There's a real financial barrier. And companies are un, uh, are reluctant to spend that kind of coin on drugs that they don't know in advance are probably going to get licensed. And this has given us this flood of Me Too drugs in the area of mood disorders, this slew of SSRIs, which are all Me Too's. And in the area of psychosis, schizophrenia, it's given us this flood of so-called second-generation antipsychotics. Companies keep bringing them to market because they know that uh, they work. They know that they can be marketed successfully. And once a drug is on the market for psychosis or schizophrenia, then the race is on just to expand the indications to see if you can get it accepted for mood disorders, see if you can get it accepted in the geriatric population, in the adolescent population. So this is the way you make money in psychopharmacology is by getting your thing onto the market and then expanding the indications as rapidly as you can before the 17-year uh, patent expires. So here, uh, there's clearly no question of a patent for anything that I've mentioned. There, these drugs are all public domain now. Some of them aren't permitted to be prescribed, but uh, you couldn't get a patent on anything that I mentioned now unless it was a use patent. So the trick in psychopharmacology today would be to take something like MMDA and produce congeners of it, drugs that are close but no cigar. And with the amphetamines, it's not that difficult. There are a lot of ways you can spin the, the PEA derivatives. But there's a lot of timidity about doing this because there's a lot of fear in the regulatory world. There's a lot of fear in Congress and in Ottawa about drugs that are very psychoactive. They can produce hallucinations and, or, or that are mind-bending, mind-expanding. The, the regulators are terrified of this kind of thing because if something goes wrong, then uh, the people who uh, license the drug are on the hook for it. So there are a number of barriers, in other words, to uh, getting these compounds back into the clinic. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned people in law and Congress and in Ottawa who are really terrified of these drugs. Do you think the same fear exists in the public as well and in patients who would potentially be being, being prescribed these drugs? There would be a lot more resistance among older patients than younger patients. In the sort of late adolescent or early adult bracket, these drugs are widely used, something like ecstasy, for example, or uh, the love drug or uh, the other amphetamines. Uh, peyote, LSD, widely used. Morphine is widely used, actually. So I don't think there'd be very much resistance in this population to having these agents prescribed. But older people would, are still terrified with the whole idea of psychedelic drugs associated with Timothy Leary, uh, turn off, tune in, drop out. This left a very, the sort of whole legacy of the late 1960s and 70s left a, a very bad taste in people's mouths. And so if you try to revive something like LSD, uh, there's going to be a lot of resistance to it. But LSD had legitimate clinical uses for quite a while. It was used in the treatment of alcoholism. It was used in psych psychotherapy. Uh, there are other conceivable uses for LSD as well. Uh, Sandoz marketed it, as Della said, and uh, if you could get back into that groove and to find new indications for LSD, you'd have a powerful marketing machine that would swing into action in, over to, in order to overcome these fears. Absolutely. There has been a, almost a zeitgeist change amongst the older, the older population versus the newer population, a zeitgeist change um, where the newer population are more accepting of these things and they don't have the same fears and reservations as the older population do. And so, Amber, what's your final take on psychedelic drugs? I do personally think that there is benefit, and I do personally think that if you're in a state that you can handle it, if you prepare for it properly, if you do your research, then I think it's something that people should try at least once, just because so many people rate it as one of the top five experiences of their life. And I can 100% vouch for that. I guess I would like people to know that this stuff is very powerful. 
and it kind of co-ops how you see the world, how you think, how you process information while you're on it. So be careful. Set and setting are important. Don't just do these substances because somebody offered it to you and you're like, oh, that might be fun. They are very powerful. They have the potential to induce very positive, long-lasting changes. But I feel like if something has that potential, then it also has the opposite potential. Anything that, you know, looks like abuse or dependence or anything like that is not a good thing. But I'm not particularly worried about that. The benefit that I would like to see from it is something that Dr. Farb was talking about, which is the potential for it to be used therapeutically, like, for example, microdosing. Thanks, Amber, for being open about your experiences with psychedelics for this episode. It's interesting to hear a first-hand account of what these substances are like. Yeah, it's not a problem, and I'm happy to share. Because, as we've heard throughout this episode, psychedelics have always been steeped in mystery, and science is only beginning to unravel how they work, not only on a biological level, but on a more psychological and personal level as well. There are so many accounts of people having their lives transformed for the better by using psychedelics just once that it's almost impossible to ignore. Scientists can hear the signal in the noise, and there is a growing push for more research into the benefits and the risks of such powerful substances. We had a lot of fun making this episode, and we hope you learned as much as we did from our little venture down the rabbit hole. Psychedelics can be a loaded term, but before you say off with their heads, just keep an open mind. For in the wise words of a certain mad hatter, everyone wants some magical solution to their problem, and everyone refuses to believe in magic. This episode was hosted by myself, Amber, as well as Sina. Kiko, James, and Melissa assisted with content creation, photography by Nathan and Marin, as well as a special shout out to our audio engineer for this episode, Kat. And a very special thank you to our guests, Dr. Ed Shorter, Dr. Norm Farb, and Dr. Fred Barrett for speaking to us about this topic as well as our very own Amber for sharing her psychedelic experiences. And of course, a huge thank you to all of our listeners. And don't forget to check out our next episode where we explore the topic of health and homelessness. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.